And good morning, church family. We're continuing our series through the book of Colossians. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1 together. Colossians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 28 and 29. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 983. As always, I'll begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text together. Let's pray now. Our Lord, we thank you so much for another morning to gather together as a church family. Lord, we thank you for the rich uh, heritage of Christian music that we enjoy. Lord, we thank you for your written word and how we can read it together and now study it together. Lord, would you open our minds this morning, help us to understand uh, this passage of Scripture. Uh, Lord, open our hearts so that we're ready to receive it. Lord, use this passage to continue uh, developing this church into one fully pleasing to you. Lord, give us an eagerness to put your words into practice. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a statement attributed to Francis of Assisi, a medieval monk, that goes like this. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Now, Francis never actually said that, but that hasn't stopped Christians from spreading that quote far and wide. And I think it's so popular because it fits the spirit of our age. See, there's a real tendency in our day to speak with authority on spiritual matters. And so the idea that the gospel could be spread by us without us needing to actually open our mouths and use words, well, that's a really attractive idea to a lot of people today. In fact, even some missionaries have begun to adopt this practice Uh, For example, a number of years ago, a couple of classmates of mine from school began going out and raising monies to become missionaries to Ireland. took them a little while, but they, they got the money together, and then they headed overseas. But after a little while, their supporters became a little bit concerned. You see, their social media feed just to be, just seemed to be filled with pictures of sightseeing trips and of visits to the local pubs and, and things like this. So the supporters reached out to this missionary couple, and they said, hey, what's going on here? We've given you tens of thousands of dollars to spread the gospel in Ireland. What are you doing? When are you going to start that work? This couple was frustrated, and they responded back to their supporters. They said, no, no, you guys don't understand. We're organic missionaries. And then they explained what that means. They said, that means that that we just go overseas and we just are going to live our lives in this foreign country and we're going to trust that our Christian lives are so compelling to the non-believers of Ireland that they are just going to beg us to to hear the gospel so they can be converted. But we're not actually going to talk to people, you know, take the initiative with the gospel. Well, as you can imagine, that was not well received by, by the supporters. They'd never heard of organic missions. This was a new thing. And friends, I think you understand that the only way to make disciples of Christ is for us to take the initiative, 
and open our mouths and speak the words of life so that people have an opportunity to respond. And this brings us to our text. Again, we are in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Now, these verses are part of a larger portion of Scripture that begins in verse 24. And in this whole section, the Apostle Paul is describing the nature of his ministry to the church in Colossae. As we've looked at Paul's words here and we've compared it to the rest of the New Testament, we found that Paul's words here about his ministry are not unique to him. Rather, they are descriptive of the Christian ministry uh, for all time for all Christian leaders. And so we've been looking at Paul's words here and then applying it to our present context. We noted, first of all, the title that the Apostle Paul uses to describe himself. That was in verse 25. Described himself as a minister. A minister. This is what Christian leaders are. We are ministers. The word minister means servant. So we are, first and foremost, servants of Christ and of his church. And as servants of Christ, we are called to suffer for the church as Christ did. That was in verse 24. We are also called to view our work as a sacred stewardship. That was verse 25. And then regarding the main task of a minister of Christ, his main task is to communicate the word of God, and especially as it relates to the mysteries of Christ. We saw that in verses 25 through 27. Now we move into today's text, and in these two verses, the Apostle Paul continues to develop the idea that ministers are communicators of God's Word, particularly as they relate to Christ. Notice the first three words of verse 28. We have this beautiful, succinct summary of the minister's job. He writes, Him we proclaim. There it is. Him we proclaim. That's the minister's job. As a servant of Christ, his primary job is to publicly announce what God has done for this world through his son, Jesus. And the verb here is in the present active tense, meaning that this is the minister's continual activity. He doesn't just do it one time and then deem the job complete. No, the Christian's minister's job as a practice is to be proclaiming Christ to all who will listen. The Christian minister is primarily a preacher. He's a man called of God to speak to others about the things of Christ. And his proclamation of Christ has two aspects to it. We see that in verse 28. Him we proclaim... By, first, warning everyone. So the proclamation of Christ includes warnings. The Greek word here is pronounced nutheteo. It's where we get our English term, nuthetic counseling. Uh, The word speaks of admonishing people about their conduct with the goal of securing their heartfelt repentance. And so this is an integral part of... The, the minister's preaching task. It's to confront people with the fact that their beliefs and conduct are at odds with the teachings of Christ 
and is to call them to repentance. And he says the preacher is to warn everyone. He is to issue warnings to those who have not yet received Christ. The minister calls people to repent of their sinfulness and to trust in Christ, to trust in the all-sufficiency of His atonement for our sins. He's to warn the non-believer of the dangers of continuing in their rejection of Christ. Maybe the way that a doctor would warn a cancer patient about the dangers of delaying treatments. Maybe with your mind's eye, you can put yourself in that doctor's office. The doctor looks his patient in the eye and he says, Listen, I've got some really bad news for you. The test results have come back. It's cancer. And this cancer is spreading through your body quickly. And if you don't do anything about it, that cancer is going to kill you in six months' time. But then the doctor says, there's good news, though. The kind of cancer you have is treatable. And if you will start your course of treatments right now, in six months' time, you're not going to die. You will be fully healed. And so the doctor pleads with his patient, saying, I I implore you, accept the treatment and be healed. In that same way, the Christian minister is called to look the non-believer in the eye and to say to them, listen, I've got really bad news. It's called the sin nature and it has infected you and it's infected everybody. And that sin nature doesn't cure itself. It just gets worse and worse with time. And it explains why you don't do things you wish you would do. And it explains why you're constantly doing things you wish you would just stop. It explains your separation from God. And you know, if you don't do anything about this, you are going to continue on that trajectory. Things will get worse and worse until you pass right through the gates of hell from which there is no escape. But then the minister says there's also good news. God loves you so much that he has provided a way for you to be reconciled to him. He has done it through his son, Jesus Christ. He sent Christ into the world, fully man, fully God, lived a life of perfect righteousness, then voluntarily took the the guilt of our sins on his own shoulders, paying the full penalty for our sins on the cross. That he now extends to everyone life and forgiveness if they will only trust in him, repenting of sins, declaring him to be Lord. There's bad news, but there is good news. And the Christian minister implores the non-believer to accept the the penalty that was paid in their place, to to receive Christ. He warns the non-believer of the dangers of rejecting God's gracious offer. By the way, because this is one of the minister's main tasks. It also means that the Christian minister ought to be engaging with non-believers on a regular basis. And congregations should expect their pastors to be, to be taking initiative to spend hours every week intentionally engaging with people who have not yet received Christ. 
and finding the opportunities to give these warnings and these admonitions and, and to offer these pleadings with them to come and accept Christ. A Christian minister ought not to confine himself just to ministry among those who have already believed. You should not find your minister just hanging around his own church building. No, he's got a job to do. The Apostle Paul said, do the work of an evangelist. This is his job to issue warnings to the non-believer, and he must take that job seriously. But the text says he is to warn everyone. So it's not just the non-believer that he engages with. It's also professing Christians. What kind of warnings would a minister offer to Christians? Well, he would warn them about the dangers of false doctrines, about the false philosophies of this world. If he sees them drifting away from their commitments to Christ and embracing conduct, conduct or belief that is contrary to the gospel, he warns them about the dangers of drifting away from Christ. This is the minister's job, but in every case, whether it's with the non-believer or the believer, the professing Christian, the minister is called to speak with love and passion. The minister is not to be like some detached college professor you know, who just imparts bits of information to, class, to, to a classroom. No, think about those, those words, to, to warn, to admonish. These are very emotional words. So the minister of Christ is someone who has felt deeply in his own heart the truths of the gospel. He has embraced them himself in personal faith. And he is convinced that this is what all people need. And so out of the passion of his heart and his love for people, he speaks the words of Christ to others. And when he encounters the non-believer, he lovingly and passionately and with a sense of urgency says, you must accept Christ. And to the Christian who is drifting from that profession of faith once made, he is again lovingly and urgently saying, you must come back. Don't forsake the Christ that you have embraced. A minister of Christ is a minister of the word, and part of that job means issuing warnings to all people, calling them to wholehearted devotion to Christ. Do you know, friends, this is also perhaps the hardest part of the minister's job. And there are a lot of reasons for that, one reason being that Nobody really enjoys calling others to repentance. Okay. Uh, now, I, I understand there are some weirdos out there who just love being in these adversarial situations. They love nothing more than to tell people they've got a problem that they need to change. But that's not what most of us are like. Okay. And that, in, that includes most pastors. We don't like confronting people. And the idea of, of looking someone in the eye and saying, you are lacking Christ and you desperately need him. Or you are not living according to your profession of faith. That is hard for a person to do. In fact, the very thought of it tends to, to raise the anxiety level in the minister. It makes him a little stressful 
feel a little stressful. He doesn't, doesn't care for it too much. But, you know, beyond that, there are larger cultural forces at play making this a very difficult task. For example, we live in a very relativistic age today, meaning that our society has largely given up on the idea that there are facts or virtues that everybody ought to embrace. Instead, truth and morality have become relativized in our society, and everybody is supposed to just make things up as they go. So this person can have his truth and his morals, and this person over here can have her truth and her morals, and even if they contradict each other, it's supposed to be okay. And we're supposed to affirm the two in their commitments and never to confront them with their values. This is also a highly therapeutic age, meaning that one's personal psychological happiness is considered the greatest value. And so if you do anything to disrupt the psychological well-being of another person, like, for example, telling them that their way of life is wrong or sinful that is considered very offensive. It's even considered hate speech. On the far left, it's even considered an act of violence. And you say, wait a minute, I've not bruised their body. What violence have I done? And they say, you have done violence to their psyche. You have, you have robbed them of their personal happiness by telling them that they have sinned against God. You have done violence to them on the inside. This is the, the society that we live in today. And you know, besides all of these you know, cultural, philosophical kinds of issues, there is just the practical thing of people don't like to be confronted anywhere at any time. And people usually don't respond well when others give them warnings or admonitions even within the church, a person is more likely to leave the church than to morally reform if a minister confronts them about something. That's just the way that people are. And so you can see why it's a very difficult task to minister warnings to people. Okay, the, the ministry of confrontation is not a ministry well received. But even so, my friends, the will of Christ for his ministers must be followed. Listen to Paul's words to the young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He wrote, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Paul is saying there, listen, Timothy, there are going to be times when your words are well-received. There will be other times when they're not received well at all. But it doesn't matter. You're a minister. Your job is to preach the word. And that includes reproving and rebuking and exhorting. It must be done. And friends, if I could put just as fine a point on it as possible... Uh, a pastor who's unwilling to call people to repentance when it's necessary is unworthy of the title and ought to step down immediately. This is part of the minister's job. But thankfully, 
We see this isn't the minister's only job. Look at the next phrase in verse 28. Paul writes, Him we proclaim by warning everyone, now here's the next part, and by teaching everyone. So there are warnings to be issued, but on the other side, there are also positive instructions to be offered. The minister is also called to expound the truths of God's word for the believer's spiritual growth. See, there are wonderful doctrines to be taught out of God's word. There's the doctrine of of God and creation, the doctrines of humanity and sin, the doctrines of the church and the last things, the doctrine of Christ and his atonement. So many things to learn from God's word. And part of the ministry of the word is to impart these wonderful truths. There are also history lessons to be taught out of the Bible. The Apostle Paul explains the usefulness of biblical history in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, now all these past things uh, written down in the Old Testament, he says, these things happened as an example for us. They were written down for our instruction. So the pastor will positively expound on the doctrines of Holy Scripture. He will also expound upon the, the history of the the biblical storyline and draw out lessons from the history. There are also ethical precepts to be taught from God's Word. Uh, Virtues to be learned and cultivated by God's people. And friends, together, the doctrines and the history and the, the ethical precepts of Scripture come together in the mind of a believer to create a comprehensive worldview so that they are fully capable of living a life of godliness in their society. It's the pastor's great privilege to, to, to develop that worldview from the Scriptures and to impart it to the minds of God's people. And you'll notice there's a certain way in which all of this must be done. It says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So there's a right way and a wrong way to issue warnings and to give instructions. There's a wise way to do it and an unwise way. So Paul says here, the minister is called to speak at all times with all wisdom. That means offering those warnings and those teachings in a way that shows awareness of the cultural moment, also awareness of the personalities and needs of the the individuals he's speaking to, and also with a well-grounded knowledge of God's Word. And the minister of God is called to know the Word, to know the times he's living in, to know the people that God has called him to minister to, and to put all of that together and to inform the way that he speaks. Now, sometimes his words will be well-received, sometimes they won't be well-received regardless. But the, the minister never wants to be an unnecessary offense to people. So he learns to speak with wisdom. His goal is to positively impact the lives of the people he's speaking to. So he'd better learn how to speak to them well. They better know that he loves them, that he's on their side, that he's speaking wisdom from Scripture, not wisdom out of his own head. This is why it's so important, by the way, for a church to hire a man who is not a novice. 
when they are looking for a minister. For the Apostle Paul's part, he was trained by the best scholars of his day before coming to Christ. And then after coming to Christ, he was taught by Christ directly. So Paul had many, many years of instruction and development in spiritual growth before ever taking on those missionary responsibilities. And in the same way, churches today ought to insist that that those seeking out the pastorate should be old enough to have some life experience behind them, should be well-versed in the scriptures and know how to speak God's words with wisdom. Because that's the minister's main task, is to speak to people wisely. We're currently living in a, in a time of national shortage for pastors. And so a number of churches are, are beginning to dumb down the requirements of their pastors in the hope of trying to fill the pulpit. So they started with standards this high, and now the standards are down here, and now they're getting ready to put them down here because there just aren't enough pastors to go around. The thought is that even a bad pastor is better than none. But in truth, a bad one is worse than none. Churches must resist the temptation to dumb down the requirements for their pastors. They must insist upon finding well-educated men, men experienced in the world, Men who can communicate wisely to the people in their age. And also, if we understand that this is the main task of a minister or a pastor, to communicate God's words with warnings and with instructions and to do so with wisdom, then the local church will also be zealous to make sure that that's where the lion's share of the pastor's time is being spent each week. At the start of this section of Colossians, we talked about all of the different ways that pastors spend their time these days. Um, Some pastors have become community organizers, some uh, humanitarian workers. Uh, Other pastors envision themselves to be CEOs, and so they spend all of their time um, attending committee meetings and and strategizing and working on the brand, so-called, of the church and in all of these things. But friends, those aren't the, the jobs of the pastor, are they? His primary job is to proclaim Christ and Him crucified, to warn and to teach with all wisdom, whether that is in a large group setting or whether that is in a small group or whether it is one-on-one. That's how he is to spend his time. And a church should be very concerned that he spends his time as Christ would have him do. They should expect to find their pastor spending many hours a week in his study preparing to speak to people. They should expect to find him in church services where he will publicly proclaim God's word. And they should also expect him to spend many hours a week out in the field talking to people out there. I already mentioned that he should be doing the work of an evangelist, spending hours a week interacting with the non-believer so that he can call them to Christ. But he should also be among believers as well, going house to house or visiting them in hospital rooms or out to, uh, to lunch or even inviting them into his study to talk one-on-one 
But you should find the pastor of the church ministering the word as his primary occupation. Helping them to understand it. Helping them to to shape their lives by it more and more. Friends, why does God call his ministers to spend their time ministering the word? Well, here's why. Look at the end of verse 28. Paul writes, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, now the purpose clause, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So there is the goal of all of this labor in communicating the word, to present people mature in Christ. Christ. Now that, that word mature, it's a, it's a rather weak translation of the underlying Greek word. I think a better term would be blameless, to present people blameless before God. What Paul is saying here is that all of his efforts as a Christian minister were done with the end in view. He's not just thinking about the here and now. He's thinking about that final judgment day when people will stand before Christ and receive their verdict from Him. And Paul's goal is that every single person that God gave him an opportunity to speak to, that every single one of them would one day stand before the risen Christ in judgment and hear from Christ, you are blameless spotless, enter the joy of my kingdom. That's what he wanted to hear. In fact, I believe Paul is using the the imagery here of a wedding ceremony. There's all this preparation ahead of time for the bride to be ready for the wedding day. I mean, she and and her, her crew, they are working out every single detail. Then finally the wedding day comes, and there's all of this preparation. Finally she puts on this spotless white dress, and she marches down the aisle with her escort, and then she is brought face to face with her groom. And the goal is to be beautiful and spotless and ready for her groom. Well, in the same way, friends, the Scriptures call the church the bride of Christ. And Paul sees himself as part of the bride's like wedding party. And his job is to work and to toil in the Scriptures, uh, getting the Scriptures into non-believers so they'll come to faith in Christ, and then helping believers fully mature in their spiritual growth. And he does it so that he can escort Christ's church everyone that he had the opportunity to interact with, he could escort them right down the aisle, present them face-to-face before their groom, Christ, and for Christ to look at his bride and say, beautiful, spotless, she's ready for our marriage. That was Paul's goal. See, the minister isn't just thinking about what would be most expedient for today, what will draw the biggest crowd right now. He's thinking about that great day to come and what the church of Christ needs now to be ready for that day then. His goal is to maximize the joy of all of God's people on their wedding day with Christ. Now, very briefly, the final statement of this passage 
How does the minister of God find the power to continue on in his labors? Well, we see that in verse 29, last part of the verse. He writes, for this I toil, okay, this, this presenting people before Christ blameless, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul was toiling in ministry. Okay, He was not a passive guy. And yet it was also the power of God working in and through him that kept him going in his work. It was the grace of God at work in him that kept him going. This was also the um, source of his optimism in ministry. Look, Paul was, was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was in poverty. He, he faced all kinds of hardship over the course of his ministry. But he kept going, and he was optimistic about the future. How could he be so? How could he be optimistic about the foolishness of preaching? It is a folly, right? That's what Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians. The idea that you could just talk to people from the Word of God and it could do them eternal good? It's a folly. What would keep somebody doing this week in and week out? Well, it's the grace of God at work in the minister, keeping him optimistic about God's ability to save his people and to bring them to full maturity so they can be presented to Christ blameless at that judgment day. He is working and God is working through him. And God will bring all things to their appointed end. Well, friends, now to conclude this entire section of Colossians chapter 1. What we've learned throughout this section is that God has done a work through Christ to reconcile all things to himself. God commands us to go into all the world and to communicate that message using words Words of warning, words of teaching. People must hear the words of the gospel if they are to be saved. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15 say, How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? We must speak if anyone is to believe. And then Christians must hear the full counsel of God if they are to become fully pleasing to Him. And so to that end, God calls ministers to be heralds of His words. They're servants of Christ and of His church. He sends them out to speak to non-believers and to Christians alike, to warn them and to teach them with all wisdom. And he also calls non-pastors to communicate his word as opportunities arise too. Listen to 1 Peter 3, verse 15. It says, In your hearts, he's speaking out to all believers in the church, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So God calls ministers to take the lead in this, to spend the lion's share of their time ministering the word. But he also calls every Christian to be ready whenever the opportunities arise to speak the words of the gospel to others for their spiritual conversion and then their spiritual uplift. So my friends, will you pray for your pastors? 
for their faithfulness, for their dedication to their God-ordained task. Would you pray for fruit for their labors? Also, assuming your pastors are committed to sound doctrine and biblical teaching, will you try to support their ministry? Make it easier for them to communicate the word, not make it more difficult. You know, over the course of this pandemic, two of my friends in ministry have left the pastorate. And it's not because of any moral failures on their part. These were good men, godly, committed to sound doctrine, outstanding expositors of God's word. And fairly young, too. They had many years of of fruitful ministry ahead of them. Why did they leave the pastorate? Well, it was because of little things, like decisions they had to make during the pandemic that some didn't like. And so a few disgruntled people began to spread their resentments to others, and that they spread the resentments to still others, until it seemed that the whole church was against these men. And they could no longer function in the pastorate of these churches, and so they were forced to resign. One is out of the pastorate for good. I don't know what's going to become of the other. But friends, make the ministry a joy for your pastors. To the extent that they are faithful, support their efforts. And then finally, be faithful yourself. Know the gospel. Be ready to share the gospel with anyone that you have an opportunity to speak with. And when you encounter a fellow believer who is struggling with their faith, or maybe you even see them drifting from the path of Christ, call them back. Give them warnings. Give them teachings. Bring them back to the, to the safe road that Christ has laid out for us. This is all of our responsibility. We are all ministers of Christ. And let's bow together in prayer now. Father, thank you for this entire section of Colossians. Lord, what a convicting passage for me to work through as I see what a a pastor is supposed to be and do. Lord, what a challenge for our congregation as well. Help us all, Lord, to value what you value in a minister. And help us all to do our parts as servants of your Son, to open our mouths to speak truths out of your word for the conversion of the non-believing, and for the spiritual growth of those who do know you. Lord, be glorified in your church as we seek to do ministry your way. And we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.